Hey gang, the 2012 Max Fund Drive is in full swing. If you listen to this program every week, please step up and help support it. We really are supported by your donations. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. When MTV News producer Ben Wagner turned 30, he went to Nantucket and met someone very special. Was standing watching the sunset and from the edge of the dune heard, is the birthday boy here? And turned and there he is. It was Mr. Rogers. What did he talk about with the world's kindest man? How did it change his life? Stick around. It's Bullseye. Oh, man, oh, man, it's a good show this week. I'll talk to Ben and Christopher Wagner about America's most beloved broadcaster, Mr. Fred Rogers, and we will all hold back tears. Plus, I'll sit down with another beloved Cardigan American, Mr. Bob Newhart. Yes, the Bob Newhart. And did you know that God calls into sports talk radio programs? We'll feature another chapter of God's memoir, as written by comedy scribe David Jabberbaum. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we like to check in with some of our favorite culture critics to get some picks for stuff that is worth your time. This week, it's video games, and it is an honor to be uh, joined by uh, comedian and video game journalist Heather Ann Campbell and uh, video game podcaster and comedian Kumail Nanjiani. Guys, welcome to uh, Bullseye. Hi. Thanks for having us. Oh, of course. It is a delight to have you. Um, I am going to start with you, Heather, and this game called Uncharted Golden Abyss uh, for the PS Vita, which is a new portable uh, video game system from PlayStation. Yeah, it's a return to the adventures of Nathan Drake, who is a Indiana Jones-esque adventurer. And by Indiana Jones-esque adventurer, I played one of these. He is a direct knockoff of Indiana yeah. Jones. Yes, he has, he has no jacket and no hat and is essentially the same guy. Yeah. I don't think he has a whip either. He doesn't have a whip, but he is very handsome. <laughs> and he's very quippy, very mm-hmm. similar. Yep. And I think his games would have been a better fourth Indiana Jones movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Just watching someone play one of these games might have been a better Indiana Jones movie. Yep. That's yep. exactly right. And what makes the game fantastic for me is just if you had shown somebody this game in 2005 and said oh that's running on a portable system they probably would have thrown up on their lap they would have cried tears of blood yep so is it what is it about it that that would make someone freak out that it was portable is it the intensity of the what's going on on the screen is it the graphics is it the yes the things you've just mentioned yes (laughs) also the system has uh two analog sticks so um in the past... An uh, analog stick is like a joystick, the kind that you operate with your thumbs. Yes. The system has two of those. So you can control the camera and uh, your, the direction in which you're running. For me, I would try and play first-person shooters on portable consoles, and they only had one thumbstick, so they always had to sort of futz around and figure out how to you know, move your head around. But with this, there's no translation. It's exactly the control you're used to. The graphics on this thing are 
unbelievable. They're unbelievable. It's ridiculous that we have this technology right now. Yeah. It's, the screen is gorgeous. The, the graphics are as good as PS3 or yeah. Xbox 360. It's un, it's, yeah. it's, as a piece of machinery, it's remarkable. Don't you want to play something different on a little tiny screen than you do on a big giant TV? Well, the pixel density of the system is such that if you hold it close to your face, <laughs> it's actually it's better than a large screen television yeah. in a lot of ways. Is that why Suck there's on that. that big nose print on yours? Yes. Yeah. I, I just duct tape it to my eyes. <laughs> Kumail, let's talk a little bit about Rayman Origins. This is on a, a bunch of different platforms. Seriously, if I read this uh, summary of what happens in this... <laughs> The story follows Rayman, his friend Glowbox, and two teensies as they fight <laughs> dark tunes and other evil creatures that, in infect, that have infected the Glade of Dreams. Yeah. Um, you're going to have to sell this one because I just did a terrible job. No, I think that's it. That's the sell. <laughs> Here's what it is. The story is impenetrable. It's a French developer. The stories, it makes no sense. But the game itself is amazing and it's out on the Vita too. Yeah, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It looks as good as, the, uh, as its console, you know, older siblings uh it's a side scroller that looks amazing it's like a throwback game so if you like the genesis or the nintendo or super nintendo there's that kind of game it looks unbelievable it's really uh, it's the only game where i've had underwater levels that were actually fun to play <laughs> yeah underwater levels should be outlawed but this one had good ones and it was it's a very very it gets really tough later if you like challenging games and just like fun you know, now it's 50% off because nobody bought it. It's a really, really <laughs> awesome game. Kumail, Heather, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Heather Ann Campbell recommends Uncharted Golden Abyss. You can find her writing in various video game publications, and you can find her comedy show, The Midnight Show, touring the country with uh, special guest and host, uh, Mr. Drew Carey from television. Um, Kumail Nanjiani is the co-host of the comedy and video game podcast, The Indoor Kids, and you can find him on your televisions on the TNT television program, Franklin and Bash. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is one of the most legendary figures in American comedy, Bob Newhart. Um, he is uh, one of the first great stars of stand-up comedy, um, the first best-selling uh, stand-up comedian on record, and one of the first stand-up comics to anchor a sitcom. He was the star of two long-running smash hit sitcoms and has acted in numerous films and television shows since, and it's a great honor to be in his office speaking with Thank him. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for, for being on the show. Um, you grew up in Chicago, and I wonder what you what you thought of when you thought of a career in comedy when you were, you know, when you were at the age where you actually have to think of a career when you were 17 or 19 or something like that, what did you think it it was or could be? Well, um, I, I was, I was, I was much too practical to presume to have a career in comedy. It, it was, um, you know, I, I was active in a in a, a local stock company. I didn't believe the movies that where the producer's car breaks down and and while he's waiting for it to be fixed, he 
decides to go and see the play, and and you're just what he's looking for, and, and you know, hey, I want to sign you up for my Broadway show. I did, you know, that that doesn't happen in real life. So I had a degree in effect in accounting. It was actually in management, but I had the, but I, I I still had realized that isn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so decided I was just going to give comedy a try. People had been telling me, oh, you're very funny, you think very funny. And they would say, you should go to Broadway, you know. And uh, and I, I always thought, you know, well, that's easy for you to say, but I have to go to Broadway and fall on my face and then crawl, somehow crawl back to Chicago. But, but, but there were moments along the way that I, I thought to myself, you have really screwed up your life. You, I mean, my the guys I went to high school with are getting married having kids and buying homes and um and I was still knocking around Chicago with with really nothing on the horizon and uh but it 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 paid off far in in, in excess of what I ever expected this is in the like mid 50s mid and late 50s and yeah, yeah. Uh, what I wonder is, at, at that point in time, in Chicago, the, the second city didn't get started till the end of the 50s. Was there any example that you saw of someone who was, you know, going on stage and doing comedy for a living? Like, I know that there was, you know, there's there was regional sort of joke-based stand-up comedy that was going on in the Borscht Belt and stuff like that. And there was versions of that on TV, but was there even a way that you saw that you could just go on stage and be funny? Well, it's interesting because what happened was there was this regional comedy where the Boris Bell guys would comment on uh, Phil Foster, a stand-up comic. Uh, he had a routine on, on, the, on the Dodgers. And, of course, all the people in New York loved the Dodgers, and, and they loved— but, then along came a show called the Ed Sullivan Show, and all of a sudden you you couldn't do regional humor anymore because, and it I think it it really changed comedy because you had regional comics that you had regional comics in Chicago that just they played Chicago venues and and they didn't they did it didn't work in New York didn't work in L A it worked in Chicago, but then when when Sullivan came along and. Um, the way he could change people's career uh, if you were successful on the show. Um, I think it changed the face of comedy, and it became... You had to appeal, appeal to a country, not to, a, to a, a regional area. Did you ever think of yourself as someone who might get up on stage and do a stage act? Before no, you made your own. My, my, probably my aspiration at that time... Uh, if if I could have been a, a comedy writer for Bob and Ray, that that probably would have I, I would have been very happy to have, to have spent the rest of my life just writing for Bob and Ray because I thought they were so they were so great they were so inventive and so and so great. Elliot is covering the literary scene tonight, so come in, Bob. It seems as if every year they're coming out with bigger and bigger books at higher and higher prices. The author of one such work is here with me now. You are Mr. Nelson, uh, Alfred E. Nelson, am I correct? That's in that? right, and the book I wrote is A History of the United States. Yes, well, I've been looking through this uh, copy we have here. It's 1,100 pages long, isn't it, Mr. Yeah. Nelson? And at that, I'm just beginning to scratch the history of this country. Well, now, there are quite a few questions I'd like to ask you about it. First of all, 
Because I remember you had Abraham Lincoln driving to his inauguration in an automobile. Did you check on that at all? Well, uh, there are several glaring errors in the book that unfortunately I didn't catch. And now that was one of them. Uh, referring to the father of our country as uh, Nelson Washington. That was another one. You know, actually, I was thinking of my own last name there, you know. Actually, his real name, I think, is George. Yeah, well, you have, uh, you have a number of things like that in the book. That was a clip from the comedy duo Bob and Ray, an early influence of my guest, legendary stand-up comedian and actor Bob Newhart. The first thing that you did was actually, uh, uh, was actually a two-man act that was a little bit like Bob and Ray, right? More than a little bit like, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a rip-off of Bob and Ray. Hi, tell me about how, how it started. This was a, with a friend of yours whose name was Ed Gallagher. Ed Gallagher, yeah. Uh, I was in accounting. I was at that time. I was with. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the Glidden Company. Uh, Ed and I were in the stock company, the the O Park Players. And uh, so around three thirty, four o'clock, I, I would become depressed. <laughs> <laughs> My role as, as an accountant. Just... And so to break up the monotony of of accounting. Um, which I wasn't very good at to begin with, um, I would call Ed and I would just, um, we would do things. We'd improvise over over the phone. And uh, someone heard about, like, I called him one time and I said, uh, uh, Mr. Yeah, Mr. Smathers, uh, yeah, this is Bob at the East Factory. And uh, yeah, we have a fire here, sir. And the fire company, is they're, they're pouring water on it. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, Mr. Smathers, I'm going to have to run up to the second floor. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, so <laughs> that was that was one which could have been a Bob and Ray routine. It could have very easily been. So somebody heard about it and said, "You you guys ought to ought to record these things and and syndicate them." Uh, his name was Chris Chris Peterson, and uh, and he put up the money for uh, for an acetate for us to send out to 100 stations, which we did. And we heard back from three stations, um, uh, Northampton, Mass., uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, and Jacksonville, Florida. Almost coast to coast, not quite. We, uh, <laughs> <laughs> For a while, I was on in Santa Cruz, California, and Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and that was my pitch, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they said, what do you want for these? And Ed, Ed and I had no idea, uh, so... He said, what do you think we ought to charge? And uh, it, what we were selling basically 13 weeks of uh, five days a week, five-minute comedy routines. Um, so I said, I, and I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, $7.50 a week. I, I, don't, I don't know. Is that so? Um, well, it turns out that that wasn't right, and, and it wound up costing us money. <laughs> out of pocket, out of out of pocket. But it was a great. We should repeat that you were an accountant at the time. Yes. <laughs> so I could keep the books, but then I could see that we weren't making any money. At the end of thirteen weeks, uh, one of the stations stiffed us. I don't remember which one, uh, and the other two wanted to renew us, and we had to write back to them and tell them we couldn't afford to do this anymore. That it was it was costing us too much money in postage and tape. <laughs> you, were, you were by this point in your 
late twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it, it's, it's no small thing that you're like, uh, that you're a sort of straight arrow Catholic guy in his late twenties who's unmarried and living with his mom cause he wants to, uh, cause he wants to do this weird comedy thing. Right. Yeah, and also the, the, the my mom and dad, uh, they really they didn't know what I was doing. They had they had no idea. They knew I went downtown and I did something and uh, <laughs> it had something to do with radio or I fixed radios or I sold radios. It had something to do. They with They had radio. their fingers crossed that maybe you were Please. a prostitute. Like <laughs> you're hoping. And I'm sure my father was saying, "What what what is he doing? What is he?" Mom would say, "Just uh, dad, just calm down, calm down." He's, He'll amount to something someday. So, um, you uh, the thing that's really it sounds improbable. It it does as you suggested. Because to you me, you think it would have dawned on me somewhere online <laughs> that this wasn't working. You know. Well, the thing that sounds the thing that sounds scary to me is you know having done comedy on the radio. And having done it with a partner and without a partner and knowing what the difference is, you know, that you start out performing for no audience, which is very difficult and scary because you don't know what is and isn't funny besides your own instincts. And then but, to but, lose... But also, but also um, if it's not funny, you don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you there, just, all a, you can do is you can you can press play or do your bit and then just imagine and everyone out there hating you. <laughs> you never imagine it going well. <laughs> so you just imagine it's going over well. And so if you don't have another person there to reinforce that you're on the right path. You know, like when you have a comedy partner, part of the role that they serve is to be like, yeah, that's a good idea, and let's do this. Um, you know, and to correct sometimes too, but mostly just to make you feel like you're doing something worthwhile, right? And so to lose that is really scary if you don't even you're have... Right, you're right, Jesse. A, you're, you're at, I, sh- I should have gotten out of the business at that point. <laughs> you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact... <laughs> I, I think I will right now I, because it, it, it it's scary as you describe it. Um, I guess it was scary, but it, but it, it um, I mean I don't mean to put it on a higher level, but I I just had to find out. I just then if, if it didn't work, then I could spend the rest of my life in accounting or advertising or public relations or something. But I I I had to find out. I I just had to find out if I was any good or not. So I set aside a year, and uh, and then the year became two, and then two became three, and then uh, in about year four, uh, I made a record album, and that was through the roof. This is a telephone conversation between Abe and his press agent just before Gettysburg. Hi, Abe, sweetheart. How are you again? <laughs> I was get it, Bert. Sort of a drag, huh? <laughs> well, Abe, you know them small Pennsylvania towns. <laughs> you seen one, you seen them all. <laughs> right. Uh, listen, Abe, I got to know it. What, what, what's the problem? 
you're, you're thinking of shaving it off. Uh, Abe, uh, don't you see that's part of the image? Right, with the, with the shawl and the stovepipe at the string tie. You, you don't have the shawl. Uh, where's the shawl, Abe? That's Bob Newhart from his breakthrough album, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart. It was his first album. It hit the top of the charts in 1961, beating out Elvis Presley, and won a Grammy for Album of the Year. When Warner Brothers asked Newhart to record that album, what they didn't know was that he had never performed on stage at a nightclub. Newhart was a radio guy. A failed radio guy, truth be told. So he had to learn some new skills fast. We'll have more after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at Ask.Metafilter.com. Hey, Bullseye listeners, it's me, your beloved host, Jesse Thorne, joined by producers Nick White and Julia Smith. Hey, Nick and Julia. Hey there. Hey. How you guys doing? Doing pretty great. Hey, remember when we went to Bob Newhart's house? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and our listeners are hearing the result now. Oh, man, that was one of the most exciting things that I have ever done in my entire uh, radio broadcasting career, I have to admit. And every part of it was so pleasant, too. Yeah. You know how Bob Newhart seems on television? Exactly what he's like in real life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everyone uh, that works in the Bob Newhart organization, uh, sort of like uh, a a different job version of Bob Newhart. (laughs) Now, how many times have you done an interview with a Peabody right over your shoulder? I know. I know. Just immediately, like every award, pictures of him with a thousand different presidents. It was a pretty amazing thing to be a part of. I hope that folks out there are enjoying listening to our conversation. He was a very, uh, he was very generous with his time with us and uh, very generous in the conversation as well. And it's your donations that uh, allow us to have conversations like this. Uh, one like Bob Newhart's, it means we're driving across town, packing up all of our gear, which your donations have paid for, the microphones, the mixing board, the recording uh, equipment, schlepping it all over across town to Bel Air, which I had never been to Bel Air before. It's a real place it's not just romance sitcom exactly and um then spending the day setting up there talking to him for about 30 minutes and then driving back it's a day of all three of ours time and your donations paid for that conversation it's what got it on the air you can go now and donate maximumfund.org slash donate yeah i think this is a perfect example of uh another interview that it never could have happened before this show had staff you know i i had pers- i'd always wanted to have bob newhart bob newhart is one of my all-time comedy heroes and, um, you know, every, every nice thing that I said to Bob Newhart in this conversation was absolutely from the heart. And, you know, Julia has been working on booking Bob Newhart on this show for literally for years. It's true. It's true. I mean, it's another one of those things where we're just, you know, going around and waiting till the time is right. And um, and it takes a lot of follow up and 
attention to make sure that we finally can do it. This is, these are the kind of conversations you always look for at Bullseye, and uh, that's why you're here, and it doesn't cost a lot to chip in and support it. You can do $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month. There's thank you gifts at all levels. And we've had a really successful week so far, haven't we? We're doing really good with the drive. Yeah, as as of this recording, which is uh, the day before we put out this episode of Bullseye, we are over 600 new donors, which is 60% of the way to our goal of 1,000 new donors. It is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I just want to say that, you know, one of my goals in starting The Sound of Young America and now continuing that work on Bullseye was to make comedy... Um, as respected an art form as any other because it's always felt that way to me in my heart it's always something that I've cared about as much as any other form and I think that this interview is an example of that and it's something that we've worked on and you know I've worked on for all of the 10 plus year history of this show you know I was thinking of uh, as I was speaking with Mr. Newhart I was thinking of you know the time that I had the opportunity to interview Shelley Berman you know eight eight or nine years ago on this show or all of the conversations with comics who have uh, followed in Bob Newhart's footsteps. You know, I was thinking of uh, as, as I was asking Bob Newhart about being a straight man who gets laughs, which is um, the, the absolute rarest distinction in comedy, being able to get a laugh out of a straight line. I was thinking of other sitcom actors who can do that. And I thought of another multi-time Sound of Young America guest, Dave Foley. Um, and, you know, this is something that, you know, in recent years as podcasting has expanded and as comedy nerddom has come for closer to the fore, has become more normal. But, you know, we've been fighting the good fight in terms of having serious conversations and sometimes funny serious conversations, but serious conversations about comedy and the art of comedy for more than 10 years. You know, I we we talked to the Upright Citizens Brigade, the founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, when their television show was still on the air. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm really proud of I'm really proud of our role in that, and I'm really proud that we can continue to you know talk to folks, uh, both young young comedians who are just emerging, and absolute comedy legends like Mr. Newhart. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone. Thank you to the 600 people that have already stepped up. Thank you to those of you who are stepping up now. There's people all over Twitter sharing how excited they are about donating. Erin Campbell says she went to MaximumFun.org slash donate because it is the right thing to do. Finances be damned. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all the public radio people always ask me, like, you have such a young you have such a young audience, which, you know, in public radio terms means under 50. Um, And they say, how do you get them to donate? I'm like, "I, I don't know. They like my show. And I'm not asking for that much money. I, I, how do you not? How do you prevent your younger listeners from donating? <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, whatever your means are, I think it's possible to donate, you know? Lee Daly says he just took care of business in the Max Fund Drive. His donation will be as life-giving as the water in his new stainless steel water bottle. Yes, I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Lee Daly. Yeah. You can be one of these people. Just MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do it. Get off your duff. Isn't that what we were using for a while? Yeah, get off your duff. Well, on the on the most recent Jordan Jesse go, Rob Cordry suggested the catchphrase, I'm going to poison that dog and kill it. Uh, based on what my mom's neighbor once told me when I was seven years old about our dog. <laughs> but that's more sad than it is motivational. <laughs> Don't forget, by becoming a donor, you get all kinds of extra content to MaximumFun.org slash donate. We'll be back a little bit later on in the show.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy legend Bob Newhart. What's interesting to me about what you did and what was really distinctive about what you did was that you set yourself up as the straight man in the one-sided conversation, which is unusual. I mean, Shelley Berman had huge success and hilarious records doing this. And, you know, Shelley Berman is is not the straight man. You know, Shelley Berman's comic persona was a, you know, ball of mess. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, brilliant ball of mess, but a disaster area. And um, your you were always you were always implying the insanity rather than embodying the insanity. In McEwen's terms, my, Marshall McEwen, what I was doing was hot, as opposed to the cold medium of just sitting back and listening, because it involved the audience. The audience had to supply the other end of the of the conversation. So at the end, when you finished, they, they applauded, but they really were applauding themselves on how clever they were to figure out what was going on on the other. So they, they, were, they were involved. We have a show in Chicago called The Silent Service, and it's about the submarines and peace and war. They had one on about uh, two weeks ago, and it dealt with this nuclear submarine which went around the world for two years and never pulled into port. It was sort of an endurance test for the sailors <laughs> to, to find out how they would react under, under these situations. And the whole thing was kind of summed up in the last five minutes by the captain of the submarine. And he gave an address to the crew uh, just as they were about to surface after completing this two-year trip. And it went something like this. Man, I think you'll agree, I've been, I've been pretty lax as far as discipline is concerned, and uh, uh, golly, nobody enjoys a joke more than I do, but I would like the executive officer returned. Now, <laughs> uh, we've looked in the torpedo tubes, uh, we've looked in, in, your, in your bags, and... Uh, I mean, it's, it's been over two weeks, man, and I... We're, we're, just, we're just damn lucky that it wasn't a, the navigational officer or someone, someone real important like that. Uh, looking back on the mutiny, uh, I think a lot of the trouble stemmed from the fact that uh, you men weren't, weren't coming to me with your problems. Uh, as I told you, uh, the door to my office is always open. I think you know why it's always open. That was stolen. I'd like that return. That's Bob Newhart from his breakthrough album, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart. You recorded um, a few of these uh, pieces yourself and brought them to a sort of a, a sort of meeting with some Warner Brothers executives. And at the time, Warner Brothers Records was um, standing on shaky ground. Yes, <laughs> um, which is why which is why they were taking meetings with um, you know random comedians from Chicago. Well, well who had I, no, solo actually, what happened no was live a, track friend, record a friend of mine was was a disc jockey. Uh, his name's Dan Sorkin, and he was a very hot disc jockey. So they were touring the country, calling because it was it was shake, on shaky ground. And um, Dan said, "I have this friend of mine. I think is very funny." And and they said, or right, put something on tape. I had at that time 
uh, the driving instructor, Abe Lincoln, and the submarine commander were the three routines that I had. So I put them down on tape and brought them to the studio, and Dan played the tape for the Warner brother. Jim Conkling was president. And they said, okay. Uh, they sa And they said, we'll record you at your next nightclub. And I said, well, we have a problem uh, there because I've never played a nightclub. <laughs> so they said, well, we'll have to get you into a nightclub. And I found out recently it took them almost a year to find a club <laughs> that would take a chance on someone who had never walked on the nightclub floor. And so in February of 1960, I walked onto a nightclub floor, terrified, out of my mind. But one of the first things you learn in stand-up is you can never let the audience know you're nervous because then you're, you're chopped meat. You're, <laughs> you make them nervous, it, it doesn't work. So you have to muscle all the bravado you have and and pretend you know what you're doing. And I walked out and, and, and did that and for two weeks. I had half an album, actually, with those three, and then I had two weeks to find the other side of the album, which I would try different things at night, every night. Uh, so by that time they were ready to record, I'd, I had a full album. I got thinking about inventions. Now inventions today are handled entirely different than they were, say, a hundred years ago. They set up new product corporations, they have sales promotion firm, and they look at the invention in a business-like way. And this got me to thinking, Supposing the Wright brothers had gone to a new product corporation to market their new invention called the aeroplane. I think if they had, a guy from the sales promotion firm would have talked to him on the phone, something like this. Hello, uh, who is this, Orville? Where's, where's Willard? Uh, Wilbur, I'm sorry. I, and he'll be on uh, late at the bicycle shop all week, huh? Uh, listen, uh, I talked to the guys here at the office, and we're real excited about this thing. Uh, we really think you got something. Well, uh, we, we got a couple questions. Um, I, th I think you pretty much agree with this, uh, that the, the only way to make any loot on it is, is, to, is to start booking passengers as soon as possible. Right. Yeah, well, uh, we may pick up a little on the baggage gimmick, you know, if we, if we set it low enough, but not enough to, to make it worthwhile. Well, I, I got a couple questions. Now... All the pictures we got show either you or Wilbur uh, lying on the wings. Now, when we start booking passengers, uh, oh, they will, huh? Well, uh, I mean, if we're going to cloud them for 75, 80 bucks to the coast, you know, I don't know how they'll go for lying on the wings like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 how, how many could you handle, do you suppose? Five on either side, that's top, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that's your end of it. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Uh, listen, is there any way of putting a John on it? It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bob Newhart. We're talking about the recording of his debut record, one of the first ever smash hit comedy albums, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart. We spoke at his home office in Bel Air. When the record took off, which it did, I mean, it, it took a minute, but it became a sort of national phenomenon. How did you feel about that? I mean, you, you strike me as such a sort of modest guy, and you had also had, um, you know, at that point, 
10 years of doing various things that hadn't worked at all. <laughs> you know, you hadn't been climbing the ladder. You'd basically just been walking oh, oh. straight. When other comedians hit it, they had been climbing up this ladder and they knew exactly what they were going to do if they ever got their own show. It's going to be this, it's going to be that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to have an entourage, I'm going to have the first thing I'm going to buy is a Cadillac. And, and then I'm going all to get a monkey. Grandiose plans. <laughs> And uh, but all of a sudden, I I was I was thrust into the limelight, not not totally unprepared for for what was happening. I mean, I never expected the it, the the album would be as well received as as it was, and it was New Year's every night. I would just all of a sudden I'm getting calls, and uh, my manager Frank Hogan in Chicago said, uh, "Do you want to do six or eight at Sullivan's?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, I I said eight. I guess you know. I I never even expected to do an Ed Sullivan. Did you feel um, guilty or uncomfortable about it at all? I I didn't feel guilty. I felt uh, I don't know what I'm doing, and and they're going to find this out pretty soon, <laughs> and there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> I mean, your your first television show was not long after that record hit. This was sixty two or sixty three. Yeah, the record right? was, the record was sixty nineteen sixty came out. The variety show I did for NBC was in sixty one sixty two. So yeah, about a year about a year later. And you, I mean, among other things, I'm sitting in front of the Peabody that you won for it. Oh oh yeah. <laughs> oh that's right. Uh, so it, in some ways it was extraordinarily successful. It was also, it also only lasted one season and I, I got the impression that you were, um, that you were a little bit at sea in it, that you were a little bit yeah. lost in it. Yeah. It was, um, trying to do, trying to maintain the quality of a monologue every Week was impossible. It was just impossible to maintain the quality because what I, what I had done was I'd taken material that uh, over ten years that I had developed, and uh, I was awfully uncomfortable in the sketches. Um, I, I heard that I saw them differently than than they wound up being played. Uh, I even I went home at. Uh, I was having disagreements with um, uh, the producer, um, Roland Kibbe, and uh, he, he had been a writer for uh, Fred Allen and had great credits, you know, great writing credits. Um, so I, I didn't know that much. I, I went home back to Chicago at Christmas time, and I called my manager, Frank Hogan, and I said, Frank, why don't you call up NBC and just... Tell them I I I don't want to do this anymore. Why I I'm not enjoying it. I just I just want to do college concerts. That's all I want to do. So just call NBC and say you know find something else to put in the last half of the year. I, that's how simple I thought it was that you could just. <laughs> so the next thing I knew, uh, an agent from MCA was flew into Chicago and explained to me. The reality is, no, you don't, you can't do that. They will sue you. So I went back to 
and finished up the year. There, there was we were a borderline rating wise. We were borderline. We could have gone into another year. Um, it would have meant replacing Dan, which I I wouldn't do. So they said, would you have to get rid of the announcer? I said, no, no, you don't understand. He he has a lot to do with why I'm here. And uh, they said, well, we can't renew you. And I said, that's that's fine with me, you know, because I I just want to go back to stand up and college audiences your two sitcoms were and especially the first of the two was sort of the the first time that uh stand-up comedian's persona had been translated into the sitcom format something that became you know popular and then to the point of cliche in the 80s and 90s um but it it was totally new in the at the beginning of the 70s it was it was something that just hadn't really been done um and certainly hadn't been done with the the success that that you had with it um what was the what led you into that kind of tv you know when you could have certainly continued to be a very successful stand-up comedian and just done, you know, a film part here and there as you had been doing since since your first television show for at that point, you know, seven or eight years. Yeah. Um, well, I was married by that time. Had uh, our firstborn, Rob. I was on the road. I, I didn't want to be on the road. I wanted to be home and live a somewhat normal life. Um, I was approached at that point by Arthur Price, who was also my manager, my co-manager at that time, uh, who he and uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Grant Tinker formed MTM. And he said, would you like to do a situation comedy? And and I said, yeah. I said, get me off the road and uh, some kind of normal life. I I think what a a stand-up brings to a situation comedy, and you look at Roseanne or look at Jerry Seinfeld or... uh, um, on and on and on. They they know how to time the joke. They they know what the joke is. They understand the joke, the construction of the joke. But more importantly, what what a comedian brings is is his knowledge of himself, that the integrity of what he does, which is that they could have a killer line, and 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 you you have to say. See, I would, but I wouldn't say that. You know, give that to somebody else because I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it, it's a, it's a great line. It's a funny, funny line. But I, I shouldn't be saying it. So it, it's an, it's. I think that explains the longevity of of the stand up comedy and and Bill Cosby, of course. Um, when I heard Bill was going to do a situation comedy, I, I knew it was going to be a hit because I knew what Bill was going to do. He was going to do Bill and the family and and uh, and the mother and father and the grandparents and you know you just knew. And the first year was pretty much Bill's stand-up act. Yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy legend Bob Newhart. We're talking about his 1970 sitcom, The Bob Newhart Show. On the show, Newhart stars as the psychologist Bob Hartley. You're afraid of flying? That's what I said. Why? That's just stupid. 
those people in your workshop who are terrified of flying that they're stupid? Well, of course not, honey, but uh, I don't love them. <laughs> I mean, I love you, and, and when you love somebody, it's all right to tell them that they're being stupid. <laughs> well, what exactly are, are you afraid of? The part where you're off the ground. <laughs> Remember when I asked you where you want to go on a honeymoon? Hawaii, Acapulco? Did flying have anything to do with the fact you chose Gary, Indiana? There's something about a sitcom where it's a, it's a group of people who go through these adventures together, but it always sort of comes back to the same place. And the reason that you go back to watching a sitcom is because you want to spend time with these people. And so the central strength of a sitcom is if these people are vibrant. Like if this, if this is a group of characters that you want to be with. Let me tell you something I heard along the way that helped me in, my, in the, the Bob Newhart show. Jack Benny. Jack is doing uh, his television show. And Ronald Coleman, the actor, is his guest. And... On Monday, they have a table read, and everybody sits down, and they read, and the writers are there, and the producers, and everybody's making notes and laughing at their joke, that the one which our comedy writer wrote that joke. You could tell, because he would be hysterical. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, so Jack says... Um, he said, you know, don't, no, give that line to Dennis. It's fun, that's funnier if Dennis says that line. I, you know, and, oh, and give that line to Phil. Give that line to Phil Harris. And, and so the, the reading is over, and Ronald Coleman came up to Jack. He said, he said Jack, you gave away almost all your, your best lines, you know. And Jack said, yeah, but, but I'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... If you want to last, you better get a lot of good people behind you and uh, and let them do their thing. Because because if you try to claim it all for yourself, you're going to last about two weeks. So I mean, you've you've had a a pretty remarkable career, and you still do road gigs. You're still you still do a couple dozen one nighters a year. Um, and you're still acting in film and television, um, you know, not as prolifically as you once did, but you know, when things come along enough, yeah. Um, I wonder if, I wonder like what keeps you, what keeps you moving forward, whether it's, there's something that you want to achieve or whether it's just, um, you know, whether that it's just that you enjoy being in a state of motion. You know what I mean? The alternative to me is Sunset Boulevard. You know, the alternative is sitting in a darkened room um, and have Eric von Stroheim come in and ask me which episode of the Bob Newhart show I want to watch that day. <laughs> and if I think of a really great routine, am I going to do it for the dog? I mean, well, you know... Uh, Plus, Von Strahan doesn't work cheap, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, as long as I'm physically able to travel and stand up and and still make sense, 
um, I I just don't see myself. I don't see myself stop doing it. it. It's why would you stop making people laugh? Why why would you say I don't I don't want to do that anymore? You're you're good friends with Don Rickles, who yeah. also still. I mean, he works even more than you do. He does, yeah. Um, and his show is an extravaganza. Um, it involves singing and dancing. Yes. Um, well, he doesn't maybe you do call, as you much call, dancing. You call it, he calls it dancing. I call it running. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, uh, do, do the do the two of you guys? I mean, I have I have a lot of friends who are comics, and and they're always talking to each other about you know some crazy audience member in in Dubuque. Do you guys still like call each other up and say, "Man, you won't believe this guy in Carmel or this guy at, <laughs> at the Palms in Vegas"? There's a joke. Okay, there's a there there's a joke that covers almost any any occasion. I, I call them. <laughs> I, I call them Aesop's Fables for Adults. Two comics, neither one of which have ever attained any any great success. And they're sitting at the stage deli, Carnegie Deli in New York, whatever. And the one is, he says, how's it going? He said, you won't believe, last week. He said, I'm opening for Steve and Edie. People are screaming. You know my act, it's a nice act, but people are screaming. They're pounding the tables. I, I finish. I go off. There's still Steve and to walk out. They're still applauding. And, and Steve says, "You want him? Then you want him to do another couple minutes?" Yeah, yeah. So I walk back out. Tuesday, I'm working with. Um, I'm, I'm opening for Tony Bennett. Same thing. It laughs. People are pounding the table. They won't let me get off. Tony comes out. He says, "You want you want him to do a couple more minutes?" Boom, boom. He said, "Now Thursday." He said, I, I'm, I'm opening, you know, for... for um, Paul Anka. Paul Anka. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Silence. You can hear the air conditioning. And the other comic says, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those are two comics, yeah. That's... Uh, uh, well, Mr. Newar, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for well, coming thank on you, Thank you. I enjoyed it myself. Bob Newhart still regularly performs stand-up in venues across the country. You can find his tour schedule at bobnewhart.com. He's also on Twitter, at Bob Newhart. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Did you know that God actually wrote a memoir? Well, it was one of those as-told-to type situations, dictated to Emmy Award-winning comedy writer David Javerbaum. And did you know God's a sports fan? Well, here's his thoughts on the subject. What you may not know about me is that every so often I like to call into sports radio shows. I tell the screener I am Mike from Massapequa or Sam from Santa Clara, and he talks to me a minute to make sure that I am worthy enough not only to discuss the foibles of the area's athletic teams, but to freight that conversation with enough entertainment value to warrant its being broadcast to 35,000 other people in the greater, say, St. Louis area. I am put on hold, then I hear, you're on the air. And then I launch into a passionate monologue about the value of switch-hitting outfielders and dogfighting, the eternal beauty of the pick-and-roll and steroids, the day the Red Sox won the World Series, and the day O.J. Simpson murdered two people. In other words, all things sports. 
For a few pleasant minutes, the host and I complain and commiserate and argue with each other. Then I am thanked for calling, and the hosts move on, never realizing that the unseen voice with which they just talked pucks was not in fact Mike from Massapequa, but God from the great beyond. But I do not mind, for I do not call in to be recognized. I call because I love talking sports. Sport is mythic. Sport is epic. Sport is a condensation of all human activity. It is often said that sport is a metaphor for life. It would be more accurate to say, life is a metaphor for sport. U.S. Chief Justice Earl Warren once wrote, I always turn to the sports section first. The sports section records people's accomplishment. The front page reveals nothing but man's failures. A few moments' reflection reveals how utterly wrong these words are. Yet they are in keeping with the kind of mindless distraction that sports provide. They are also the greatest substitute for armed conflict ever devised. They are like unto diet war, a zero-casualty alternative to regular war, with all the great fighting and suffering and action thou demandest in a conflict, but almost none of the adverse health effects. Especially do I love the Olympics the pageantry of all the nations of the world joining together in peaceful competition as a million armed security personnel hover just off camera, myth-making at its finest. The opening ceremony in Beijing 2008 was one of the most extraordinary events I have ever seen, transcendent and thrilling. It made me again recall the greatness thy species is capable of, at least when one-fifth of it bites on the same repressive yoke. And aside... The gauntlet has been thrown down, London. Thou wilt need to do something spectacular in 2012 to top the Chinese. May I suggest Duchess Kate giving birth in the middle of Olympic Stadium just as the torch is lit? If thou likest the idea, I can help with the timing. But it is not just the Olympics. I love all sports. Athletic competition of every type and size and description enthralls and delights me. Except tennis, which is Dullsville. In sports, I see the finest specimens of my finest creation operating at the highest level of their physical abilities. And as a sports fan, I understand how much the games mean to both other fans and the athletes. The passion they stir, the tempests they royal, the loyalties they build, and above all, the rivalry, violence, and rioting they so justifiably evoke. And that is why I have never, ever influenced the outcome of a sporting event to determine the winner. I have only, on extremely rare occasions, influenced the outcome of a sporting event to affect the spread. An excerpt from the book, The Last Testament, a memoir by God, as dictated to David Javerbaum. It's available now. David is a former writer and executive producer for The Daily Show, and he's also the man behind the Twitter account, at the Tweet of God. Our voice of God is comedian and funnier die writer, Seth Morris. He's on Twitter at Seth is Morris. I'm Greg from Omaha. And I'm Shannon from Omaha. And we donate to MaximumFun.org. Oh, yeah, we listen to all the shows. Yeah, yeah, we, we've been listening to Throwing Shade. Oh, yeah, Throwing Shade is amazing. It's, it's always been a reason to, you know, like, increase our donation level. So it's like, well, they added my brother, my brother, and me, so we should donate $5 more a month this year. As MaxFun gets more and more donors, you can really see that money being put to work to make MaxFun better. 
I mean, Jesse probably could get away with putting out the same level of content, but you see him getting, you know, better editors and and more shows and just putting so much more time and effort. So whenever I give money or when we up our donation, we really feel like we're going to improve something that we already love rather than, you know, paying for something that will stay the same. I don't think there's any other media resource or entertainment resource or what have you. I don't think there's any other community like Max Fun out there. Support Maximum Fun today. Just visit maximumfun.org slash donate. Thank you. If you're interested in an exciting and educational internship at maximumfun.org, look no further than maximumfun.org slash internships. We're now accepting applications for the summer term. Hey gang, it's me, host Jesse Thorne, joining me, producers Julia Smith and Nick White. Hey, Hello. Julia. Hey, Nick. Hello. I got that backwards somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say Julia's the one with the lady voice, Nick's the one with the gentleman's voice. <laughs> it's Max Fun Drive time. This is our absolute last pledge break of the Maximum Fun Drive. As we record this, we are over 60% of the way to our Max Fun Drive goal. And if you want to check in on where we are exactly, you can either check us out on Twitter or go to the MaximumFun.org homepage where we have been keeping a running tally with my hand-drawn thermometer, which some people have told me looks like something other than a thermometer, but I choose not to believe them in their filthy minds. I didn't know it was a thermometer. I thought it was the other thing. Oh, no, it's a thermometer. Mm. It's intended to be a thermometer. You thought it was the other thing filling with blood? Mm. Maybe. Yeah, okay. Well, I intended it to be a thermometer with mercury rising. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to see the thermometer and then maybe throw in a couple of bucks after that. This is what you're paying for. You know, here's the thing. We're about to hear this interview with uh, the directors of a film about Mr. Rogers. Um, And Mr. Rogers is a public broadcasting legend. I mean, I don't uh, that seems almost too obvious to say. Um, but also just a, an American broadcasting legend. And the thing that inspires me about Mr. Rogers as a host and as an entrepreneur as well um, is that he always put first and foremost making the world a better place through his work. That he, he always worked as hard as he could to make something that would make that that would leave a legacy that would leave the world better than the world that he came into and that's why he was so at home in public broadcasting i think i think that's why it never felt awkward to have a pledge break in a mr rogers show because you know mr rogers was someone who so obviously passionately believed in what he was doing and that has always been the ideal that I have strived for at MaximumFun.org. Whether it's um, this show, whether it's you know arts and culture, um, or whether it's the silliest comedy on My Brother, My Brother and Me, um, it's stuff that we really believe in and we know that you out there in the audience really believe in. And the reason that we do it this way, the reason that we do it supported by listeners 
is because we want it to be something that is for you, that makes your lives better, that is an important part of your life. And when we get, you know, tweets about the Max Fund Drive and when we ask for, when we go out there and ask for your money and we hear about the role that these shows play in your life, whether it's, you know, discovering a, a great new book or a great new show or whether it's laughing on your way to work or laughing on your way home from work or laughing when you're at work or whatever it is, how, how central the work that we do is to your lives. It, it really means a lot to us, and we really appreciate the support that um, thousands of you give us uh, by voluntarily giving us some money to help pay for the work that we do. Absolutely, and thank you to all those people who are supporting us. And you're saying so on Twitter. It's great. Samuel Hansen is saying he may be unemployed, he may be broke, but he is still a supporter of great content. Join him and give to Max Fund Drive. Five dollars a month, ten dollars a month, or if you can do it, twenty dollars a month. There's all kinds of levels. You'll see all kinds of uh, gifts um, that we will send your way as thanks for supporting us. But we know that you're really just chipping in because you listen to this every week. You listen to all the shows. You listen to one or two of the shows. Whatever you do, you like this. It helps your commute. It helps your day at work. It helps whatever you have. And thank you. Yeah, Sam Hansen is a longtime member of our community, and while I will not turn away. Uh, any amount of money from anyone. I will say we do have an unemployed listener exemption to our requests for money. <laughs> if you do not have a job, you are not obliged to donate to MaximumFund.org. However, there are pledge levels go- that range from $200 a month where you get a free ticket to Max FunCon, among many other thank you gifts, all the way to $5 a month, month which I think that uh, if you live in the first world and you have a job, you can find 5 bucks a month uh, to support the media that you love. So if you've got a job, uh, I think that you can afford to support us. All it takes is just a couple minutes to go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and, you know, tell us you care. And then you it won't bother you ever again except for the warm feeling in your heart when you listen to, to our shows and you know that you're helping pay for them. William Duke says he donated to the Max Fund Drive, and now Jesse Thorne's name appears on his bank statement. <laughs> He's printing it for posterity. That's true. The, uh, <laughs> the credit card account is in my name. <laughs> it pays Maximum Fund Incorporated, but it will say my personal name on your account. Although the, the, more, uh, the more perplexing thing is if you choose to pay by PayPal, uh, it's under uh, it's under our old old website's name, which is Splangy dot com, uh, just because it's been the same ever since. And I've had people email me asking if I signed them up for a porn website. <laughs> <laughs> Maximumfund.org slash donate. You're also about to hear this great Mr. Rogers interview. It's the one I was the first one I was in town for, so I was actually in the studio for this one. And it was really, I mean, it got intense in a really great way. I mean, you, Mr. Rogers really brings out some really core emotions i think in everybody yeah i mean i I think that when you hear mr rogers talk about why he believes in public broadcasting you'll understand why you know i here's the thing i sometimes when i'm at like a public radio conference um older folks who are in public broadcasting will ask me why i stick around in public broadcasting because um, you know, it's a, it's a, it can be a slog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Trying to, trying to convince public radio stations to carry our show, and you know, trying to convince a deeply ingrained institution to change um, is very difficult. And um, you know, the first time I heard Mister Rogers talk about why he's in public broadcasting, which you'll hear as a clip in this interview. 
Um, I, I cried. I was sitting at my computer looking at YouTube, and I cried sitting at my desk. And, you know, there is a commitment to your work that is ingrained in wanting to make the world a better place rather than wanting to make as much money as possible that is, I know, very important to me. And I imagine, <laughs> based on how much money I pay the two of you, that it's probably important <laughs> to the two of you, too. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I I, think it's interesting, too. I mean, I, I didn't intend for this interview to run this week originally, but I feel like it really it fits. Um, it fit our sort of theme of just uh you know doing the best that you can and making great things and um and it also was kind of was a reminder to me you know that um that you need to support the things that you enjoy and that you feel like are making the world a better place absolutely yeah well maximumfund.org slash donate is is where you can go to support the Max Fund Drive, you have mere, depending on when you listen to this, somewhere between uh, days and moments left. So go to MaximumFund.org slash donate and support the Max Fund Drive now. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, of course, our absolute sincere heartfelt thanks to the literally thousands of you out there who already support what we do. You're the ones who allow us to make these shows, and uh, without you, you know, we'd be working at the grocery store so thank you very much thank, thank you. you it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm about to talk to ben and christopher wagner about their film mr rogers and me but first here's a clip from the movie ben describes the first time that he met the beloved tv icon perhaps the defining moment of my life so far occurred in september 2001 on a tiny island 30 miles off the coast of massachusetts we were on Nantucket, a sleepy little whaling town turned upscale resort destination. I'd only stepped off the ferry a few hours ago. It was Labor Day 2001, the weekend of my 30th birthday. My cell phone was still vibrating as I stood on the back porch watching the last rays of light spill over the horizon. The buzz of New York City was slipping away as I settled into a quiet island night. When suddenly, a familiar voice from the edge of the dune asked, is the birthday boy here? I turned to see America's favorite neighbor reaching out to shake my hand. See, Mr. Rogers summered in a modest gray shake-shingled house on the edge of Nantucket Island. My mother rented a tiny cottage next door. So Mr. Rogers really was my neighbor. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, I don't often invite someone onto our show without having seen the thing that we're going to talk about. But when Ben Wagner sent me an email and said, I've been working on this documentary film about being neighbors with Mr. Rogers and uh, uh, living a life with Mr. Rogers and uh, and the life of Mr. Rogers. And uh, oh, also, I'm an executive at MTV News. Um I knew it was just something that I I wanted to talk about <laughs> on my show. And when I saw his uh, sweet and um, gentle and, and incredibly touching movie, M Mr. Rogers and Me, I, I have to say that I cried about half a dozen times um, because, to be frank, uh, there have been few more uh, powerful broadcasters in, in my life than uh, Mr. Rogers. And 
honestly, few more powerful people. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Ben and his brother Christopher, who uh, made this film together uh, on the Bullseye. Jesse. Welcome, guys. Pleasure to be here. It's awesome. 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 <laughs> Three of them. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm just going to start in the plainest place, which is um, I cannot imagine what it would be like to meet Mr. Rogers in real life. Like, I just can't wrap my head around that. He's such a powerful abstract figure that if he became concrete before me, I think I would just die. Which, you know, come to think of it, might be part of the reason that we spent the last 10 years doing this, because it was it was significant. In a way, you can imagine it, because he was the man in person, the experience I had with him, uh, was not profoundly different from the experience we had as viewers as children, um, or as parents watching with our children. Um he was authentic, he was curious, he was engaged, he was warm, he was um, full of light, you know? I mean, just like coming out of his uh, ears, you know? And, uh, and you know, that was, that was my experience as a kid as well, um, that you just felt um, safe and happy and informed, you know? Tell me what it was about it, that relatively brief Sure. experience with him that yeah. was so powerful well it was brief so i had lemonade with him and then we went um he gave us a tour of the house um which was actually kind of cool for a couple of reasons um his there were a pair of keds underneath a cot and he was like <laughs> and that's where i take my naps and i was like yes it is <laughs> there are your keds i mean i remember he showed us in the kitchen and it's a really sweet modest house it's called the crooked house because it is crooked i mean it's basically settled into the dunes um, and you have to duck to get through some doorways and that kind of thing. Um, and he had um, the little pencil marks where his boys had grown up along the door frame, and his boys are in their 40s at that point, you know, and it was still there. So it gives you a sense of it. It was um, really intimate. And I think the reason um, that afternoon was so profound and that one of three meetings was inspiring enough to do all of this sort of work subsequent is in the back um, – in his study where he had a little computer and a piano and a desk. Um, he, um, he asked me about my parents' divorce. I mean, I knew, I've known the guy for 35 minutes and he asked me, um, so tell, you know, I don't hear your mother doesn't talk about your father. Um, tell me about, um, your parents' divorce. And you know, it's Mr. Rogers asking about your parents' divorce. It's a little like Dr. Ruth asking about your sex life. Suddenly you've got, you you have this entire body of work that says this is the best place and time for this dialogue, you know? Um, I think what caught me off guard was that he was exactly the man you saw on on screen. And that, in my experience, that, did not, that doesn't happen, you know? The only difference is he was, in, he was wearing a polo shirt and glasses. That's it. <laughs> That's it. If anything, he was more engaged, more empathic, more curious. And that dialogue that I'd had with the television was really dialoguing back, you know? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Ben and Christopher Wagner, the directors of a movie called Mr. Rogers and Me. Here's a clip from the film. It's an interview with the author Tim Madigan. He became a friend of Mr. Rogers after interviewing him for a newspaper profile. The first time we talked on the telephone... It was late in an hour-long conversation. He said to me, Tim, do you know what the most important thing in the world is to me right now? And I said, no, it's not Mr. Rogers. And he said, talking to Tim Madigan on the telephone. 
And I thought to myself, yeah, right. But when I got to know him, I realized that what he was telling me that day was the literal truth. That is how he lived his life. Whoever was in front of him at the time, he was wholly present to. Person after person in the movie talks about the feeling of engagement they had when they were talking with him. And it's like, it's, it's one of those things that you hear about when, you know, when you hear someone describing meeting Bill Clinton or something like that, that, that one of the most powerful tools and skills you can have as a person is to make someone else feel like you're really there with them, really paying attention to them. And, you know, many people, use use that you know that is a tool to get to something you know whether it's president of the united states or you know a successful businessman or woman or whatever oscar or grammy or whatever yeah yeah and very few are the people you know great religious leaders are the people who take that being there for someone else and being present for someone else and try and use that just for itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just for the sake of humanity, for you know, a better world, not uh, accolades. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a little bit of um, a, a bit of audio from Mr. Rogers. This is him, uh, Fred Rogers, at a Senate hearing shortly after the uh, creation of public broadcasting. Um, and he is defending a, uh, a $20 million funding package for, uh, for, public, for public television specifically before um, a panel of senators who honestly do not know who he is. Um, so so let's, let's take a listen to a little bit of that. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger, much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. And for 15 years, I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. Well, I'm grateful not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in in our kind of communication. I think it's wonderful. <clears throat> Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> I've probably seen the video of that half a dozen times, and I'm still, like, I'm, I'm having to control myself from crying hearing him. Ah, you're cool with us. Let <laughs> it rip. I cry every time I see the movie, and I can practically recite the movie shot by shot, word by word, and I still, we just screened it yesterday in, in Washington, and I still tear up. Christopher, do you remember w- when you first saw that particular piece of video? Yeah, and I didn't actually see it till we were working on the on the documentary, and 
a lot of the stuff that he did was just like, how, how, how can we get this in there? It has to be in there. People have to hear this stuff because that's the kind of stuff you didn't hear on his show. And he wasn't, to my knowledge, horribly um, media present. In other words, he wasn't on a lot of interviews. He wasn't a public figure outside of his show. So you didn't get to hear about that kind of stuff. And I think that's some of what some of what we ended up wanting to share was that this guy wasn't just some guy who went, okay, camera's on, click, let's go. That was him, 100%. The guy you saw on TV was the guy who lived his life every day that way. There's something um, really beautiful about his grace in remaining so steadfast to his commitment to those children that watch the show. And when I say to those children that watch the show, I mean to me, Mm -hmm. me personally. It's a very powerful... It's a very powerful thing. I'm trying to hold my together. (laughs) That's why we call it Mr. Rogers and me too, right? I mean, obviously, a little borrowing a little bit from um, Michael Moore, but ostensibly that was just a naming device. The thinking is that we all have so many, maybe not all, but so many millions of people. I mean, for 30 plus years, 40 plus years, this was their first um, experience with broadcasting. And boy, tough to top it. Where do you go from there? You know, Mr. Rogers was a Presbyterian minister. He was ordained in the early 60s as as an adult, well into his adulthood. I think he was like 30-ish, 35. Um, and, uh, but he never had, um, you know, he never had a congregation to preach to. Um, how important do you think his faith was in you know, giving him what it took to be the person that he was. I think it was crucial. Um, I think, A, his congregation was us, was his audience. Um, B, it seems apparent as an adult viewer and as a viewer when I was a kid that he removed the dogma, if you will, of the specific tenets of any faith from the programming, but left behind the core uh, components. It's interesting to me that that his work feels so faithful without ever touching on God or dogma or religion or even the idea of spirituality. You know, it's it's very human in its scale, which I guess is very important, especially when you're talking to kids. Yeah. Well, and don't you think that was some of what helped him have the broader appeal is because then there was no, there was nobody who could say, well, that's not what I believe in. And I think what Mr. Rogers did was just the core things, you know, like, let's be good to each other. Let's not hurt each other. Let's tell each other that we care about each other. But basic things that you want to do, you do in your family, hopefully. And why shouldn't that spread outside of your home? There. I mean, one of the things that I enjoyed the most about watching the film was seeing Mr. Rogers talk about being angry Mm. because the thing that's special about him isn't that he was without negative feelings. It's not that he, that what made him holy was that he didn't get angry or he didn't get sad or disappointed or mad or whatever but rather something about being able to being able to just name feelings acknowledge them accept that they're real and 
and try and make the world a better place. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And ultimately, some of the best tools that he gave, you know, those who were willing and interested to to accept them, um, for sure. Yeah, he, you know, even when he talks about, um, I used to um, play. Um, the set that I used to cry through my fingers, right? This is what I, and he said to Amy, his music was born straight of those feelings. I mean, man, talk about you know, playing my tune. I totally get that. You have 15 records worth of sad, you know, I totally get it. Um, but what a great thing to do with that, not go out and hurt other people or, you know, rob banks or shoot up schools. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Ben and Christopher Wagner, the directors of Mr. Rogers and Me. It's a documentary about Ben's chance meeting with the beloved broadcasting legend and Mr. Rogers' legacy in American television. I, I want to ask both of you guys, um, and I'll start with you, uh, Christopher, about how the process of being so deeply engaged in this man's life and the people who were touched by this man changed you um how you feel different about your both about your life and about you know what you make hmm. well i will tell you this that i have three children an eight-year-old five-year-old and three-year-old two of whom were born during this process uh, i think probably the biggest change in my personal life is how i try and interact with people I think in a way I've always tried to be that guy, but definitely try a lot harder not to get distracted by my email or a phone call or the chores that I have to do just to be like, no, I'm here. I'm playing with the kids or I'm talking to my mom on the phone or I'm talking to my dad or I'm talking to somebody and not let it be. I'm looking over my shoulder or over their shoulder and I'm paying attention to other things. That's one of the biggest things. And definitely with the kids, I think, and he said this in that divorce special, and it's in the in one of the versions of the movie is how pers- and I won't get this exactly right, but he basically said it's a, it's it's apparent how persistent the feelings of childhood are throughout our entire life, and as I watch my children grow, I get a better understanding of that because I see from an adult perspective the events, the experiences, how I interact with them, how their mother and I interact. It has a profound impact on what they're doing every day and how they're behaving every day. So I think for me personally, the biggest thing is, is how it affects mostly my family and how I interact with my kids. What about for you? Oh, um, it's gotten that, you know, we've worked on this thing for so long that it's hard to, you know, I mean, I kind of feel like whatever I am at 40 versus what I was at 30 is the result in large part of so much of this work. I mean, think about it. We had the opportunity to talk to some really smart people, you know, and talk about some really um, cool stuff uh, and then to pour over it and try and make sense of it. Um, so in a lot of ways, the the sort of primary upside is, you know, what I always wished for when I was younger was to make some peace with um, the quote-unquote broken family so that I could... Um, be a confident dad and a happy, healthy husband. Somehow I feel like Mr. Rogers helped me grow up. And I think Mr. Rogers helped all of us grow up. But I don't know that we realize how much of that tracked 
to the to the present day and uh a little eye contact and a little like soul bearing is a good thing you know so i suppose i endeavor towards that i want to play uh one more clip and this is one that i hadn't seen before uh, i watched the movie and um uh, this is uh, this is Fred Rogers accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Emmys, and um, I'll just say that um, we'll let the full clip run, and it's a weird. Um, there's a weird amount of silence in it for a radio show <laughs> to have, um, but your radio's not broken at the end of this. <laughs> so um, yeah, let's let's take a, let's take a listen to his acceptance speech. Oh, it's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. So many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here. Some are far away. Some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take, along with me, ten seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are. Those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life. Ten seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. You know, they're the kind of people television does well to offer our world. Special thanks to my family and friends and to my coworkers in public broadcasting, family communications, and this academy for encouraging me allowing me all these years to be your neighbor. May God be with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, you can't really get much more present than that, you know? Just stand up in front of four million people on live television and say, let's all be quiet. Yeah. I mean, you know, how is she going to think, <laughs> right? How is she going to reflect if someone's always talking at you? Well, Christopher and Benjamin Wagner, thank you so much for uh, joining me on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. It's Our an honor to be here. Christopher and Benjamin Wagner are the men behind the new documentary film, Mr. Rogers and Me. It is available in iTunes and on DVD. It is also airing on PBS stations around the country. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the Outshot. A couple of years ago, we took a crew from our show to the Sundance Film Festival. Sundance, if you've never been, is kind of amazing and also kind of a nightmare. There's basically two groups of people there, film geeks and industry types. The film geeks are so deep in the movies and whatever work they're doing, a lot of them are journalists, that you can barely talk to them. And the industry types, I mean, you know, they're industry types. They're busy wearing Ugg boots in the snow. 
our Jeep got stuck in a couple of snow drifts. We had to drive back to our rental house on a freeway in a blizzard in the pitch black at one point. The only good news was we did see a couple of amazing movies. One of them was called Boy. It's the story of a Maori boy. Actually, his name is Boy. He lives in a Maori town on the coast of New Zealand. His family's a mess. His mom's gone, and his gran has just left town for a family funeral. His goofus of a father's just back from jail and thinks he's going to start a gang, but doesn't really know how to do it. His little brother Rocky thinks he has magic powers, but doesn't. There's a buried bag of money and an extended dance sequence, along with a lot of real emotion, both large and small. Here's a little clip from the movie. Boy's dad, played by the writer-director Taika Waititi, brings a few of his would-be gangmates back to the house. Nice house, bro. That's a Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I don't know, bro. These old houses are made of native timber, expensive stuff. Not many people know that, eh? And these door handles, made of copper. Yeah. yeah if I was a thief, first thing I'd do is I'd... I'd take all the copper and I'd, I'd melt it down in a furnace or a fire and then sell it to a copper dealer. Boy is a bit like a Wes Anderson movie. If Wes Anderson movies were about people eking out a living and grinding poverty in the Southern Hemisphere instead of being about how great Owen Wilson is. Actually, Taika Waititi is a bit like a Maori Owen Wilson. His dopiness is somehow immensely charming until it starts to poison boys' adolescence. That's nice here. I like the waves. They're romantic. Stick to my mate here. Nah. We met at school when we were kids. Even then I knew she was the one. Why, you got a girlfriend? Oh, uh, there's this girl that really likes me a lot. But I don't know if I want to... You know, get involved. Mm, mm. Well, don't get her pregnant, that's all. Hey. It's the number one rule. Hey, you can show her your feel it. I'll be happy if you just got a hickey. Mm. But don't have a kid, because I don't want to be a cuddle just yet. A uh, hickey. <laughs> the movie's star, James Rolleston, like the rest of the kids' cast, wasn't an actor, but he's amazing in the film. Ultimately, it's a movie about growing up and holding on to a sense of hope and wonder in a world that's closing in from every side. When we left Sundance, I was convinced that Boy was the breakout film of the festival, but it took two years to get into theaters in the United States. It's been a huge hit in New York, and it's coming to theaters around the country right now. You can find out more, including whether it's playing near you, at boythefilm.com. I couldn't recommend it more. That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Julia Smith is our producer, Nick White, our editor. Our interns are Joe Molinelli and Justin Morissette. Our theme music, Huddle Formation, by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. You can email me if you have thoughts about the show, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign. Hey guys, it's me, Jesse. I just want to take this opportunity to 
congratulate you on waiting to the absolute last possible second to go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. This is the last time I will give out that address on the air. MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. And listen, whatever level you choose, there is a great thank you gift waiting for you from bonus content to free tickets to Max FunCon. The important thing is that you get up off your duff and take care of business. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. And thank you so very, very, very much. PRI Public Radio International.